Good morning and happy Mother's Day to all our awesome moms at Griggs, all the awesome moms in our neighborhood of Pone Mill and in Greenville. We appreciate you, we love you, and we have a gift for you. In fact, we just passed out lots of, uh, uh, of gift bags in neighborhood to neighborhood moms. Uh, also, everyone that's at our service today, which is uh, outdoors, uh, will receive a gift. But if you're at home watching the live stream instead, if you're at home watching the sermon because you're not ready to get out yet and you're a mom um, and that attends our church, we'd love to give you that gift. And so uh, we got a gift for all the moms because we appreciate you. We love you. Couldn't do it without you. Happy Mother's Day. Now, here's a question. Am I going to preach on moms? Am I going to preach a Mother's Day sermon? Not really. Uh, we're actually just going to keep going through the book of Hosea. At Griggs, we like to go line by line, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And that's what our moms like and want and uh, learn from and glean from. So we're just going to keep doing that because that's uh, what I figured they would want us to do the most. Because we're really getting into this book here at Griggs. Love it. We, we are learning from it. And uh, it's just a great week to continue on with it. So if you want to turn there, we're in Hosea chapter 2. Those who are at home, Hosea 2, and those who are here this morning for our service, our outdoor service, our uh, social distancing service, as it were, they're also in Hosea 2. So no matter where you're worshiping from this morning, we're all going through the same text. And it's in Hosea chapter 2. It's our fourth week, and we're finally getting through our second chapter. So really, in Griggs' terms, this is moving right along pretty quick. It's a great way to spend four weeks, and, uh, and we'll be through chapter 2 uh, by the end of the sermon. So we're going to get in there, see what God has to say today. For a little reminder, a little background of Hosea, especially if you're just coming into this series. Uh, Hosea is an Old Testament prophet who was not just called to preach and predict, but also to play out the word of the Lord. So many prophets would preach the word of the Lord. They would predict what was coming via the word of the Lord, whether that be judgment or restoration. Hosea is a little unique. He's a little different in that he was led by God to play out the word of the Lord. His life was an illustration for God's word. And God's word to his people was that they were unfaithful. But he, God the Father, was going to be faithful to them anyway. That's why we've kind of given this uh, series the tagline or the title, God's Faithful Love for Unfaithful People. See, Hosea is called by God to marry a girl named Gomer. She is not a faithful wife. She's an unfaithful wife, lives a life of infidelity, uh, pursues other men and families, and leaves Hosea and their family to go after others. She cheats on Hosea. And this is this picture of God and Israel. Israel, at this point in time, the northern kingdom of Israel, had taken on unholy alliances with unholy nations. And part of those alliances would, were, was that Israel would worship their unholy gods. And in a sense, Israel is cheating on God in that they're breaking the covenant he has made with them, which is similar to a marriage covenant like Hosea would have with Gomer. And so throughout this drama, this play, this pageantry of Hosea and Gomer and Gomer cheating on him and him trying to win her back, we have this 
physical symbol of what's happening in the spiritual realm of God chasing after his wayward people faithfully as they're unfaithful to him. We have this this physical symbol of the spiritual truth that God loves faithfully unfaithful people, that God is going to bring us back should we repent. We actually talked about this in week one. Hosea's got three kids. Jezreel, lo ruhamai, lo amai, means Jezreel is this idea of you reap what you sow, this idea of judgment. Lo ruhamai is this idea of no mercy. And lo amai is this idea of you are not my people. And he names his kids, these three names, to show the judgment of God that will come on the Israelites who will not turn back to their first love, will not turn back to God, and will continue to worship Baal. We talked about this in week two, I believe it was, that there are two options in Hosea for the people. There's this idea of judgment that will come on those who do not repent, but even those who are committing the same sins with the same uh, tenacity, with the same level of, of dis. Uh, regard for God, if they will regard God and they will repent and come back to God, he will give them restoration. So they have these options in chapter one. Some of them will have judgment. Some of them will have restoration. We see in some sense that some will come to restoration through judgment. Then we saw in chapter two last week that in the midst of all this, God suffers long with his people. God is a long-suffering God. What that means is that he sticks with us even when we are living lives unpleasing to him, dishonoring to him. He suffers long. Though we're not giving him the worship due his name, he doesn't simply write us off on day one, but rather he shows mercy, a long-lasting mercy. There is a long grace period with God that he is still blessing his people with agricultural uh, surplus, financial surplus, peace, in the sense of military peace amongst nations. He's blessing them even though they are running from him. And so we see that he's this long-suffering God who sticks with his people, and he's the whole time urging them to repentance, for repentance will lead to restoration. Some will repent and come to restoration, some will not. And in the second half, as it were, of Hosea chapter 2, what we see is that in his long suffering, winning them back, part of what he does is discipline them. So this is not judgment. This is not the idea of the wrath of God necessarily being poured out on these people that have rejected him. This is not this idea of finality, like the final judgment, but this is the idea of discipline or correction, like a loving father would give a wayward child who needs it. Right, so if my kids running out to the street, they did this today, chasing a ball, running out to the street, I'm going to do some correction, bring them back into the yard. That's not a mean thing, that's a loving thing. Here's the idea, that there's a part of our relationship with God, sometimes because of the direction we're going, that looks just like that. We're running into the street, the street of of selfishness or of sin, idolatry, something that's going to harm us, and God sometimes has to yank us back into his kingdom, as it were, like yank us back into his presence, yank us back into relationship with him, discipline us, course correct, 
And he does this as a loving father and for our good. In fact, one of the points I want to make today, one of the broader points, bigger points that I want to make today is this. In a world full of discipline, God's is the best. God's is the best. His is full of love. His is full of good news. His is full of renewal. You see, when we talk about the discipline of God many times, we think we don't want discipline. God does discipline us. This is found in several locations throughout the Bible, several verses, passages talk about this. God disciplines his children. We don't want discipline, so we'll run from God and we won't receive discipline. It's almost as if we go with God, we get discipline, so let's go with something else, someone else, no discipline. That's actually not the options at play in life. The truth is the whole world will discipline you. The whole world's full of discipline. Make no mistake, sin is full of discipline. Just ask someone who is struggling with an addiction issue, substance abuse. They're getting, there's discipline coming their way from the drug they used to love. Now they hate it and find difficulty escaping it. There's discipline in things like workaholism. When we idolize work and put it as number one, we may make money, but then we lose our family. There's discipline. There's discipline even in laziness, living a mediocre life, a lukewarm life. We don't have a lot of extreme highs or extreme lows, but we get to the end and realize we may have wasted life. And that's a discipline of laziness. The whole world is geared up to discipline us. A lot of times we think of Christians who are in countries that are opposed to the gospel receiving uh, persecution. That's true. That happens. Right? But don't forget that those who will be non-Christians, those who will live outside of the kingdom, those who would pursue other religions, sin, those who would pursue false gods, those who would pursue their own way will also have their own form of persecution. That their sin will find them out in this life or in the next life. They'll get some persecution as well. You see, the world is not without persecution. It's full of persecution. This world is not without discipline. It's full of discipline. But there is one place where discipline comes with a loving hand, and that is the kingdom of God. There is one person who only disciplines to renew. There is one person who only disciplines for your flourishing And that is God. In a world full of discipline, God's is the best. In fact, here, that's that's one of my big, broader points today. Here it is kind of narrowed down in a statement that I want to make and want to prove from Hosea chapter 2. And that is this, that the good discipline of God lovingly extinguishes our idols rekindles a fiery passion for him and results in a renewed life. This is what the discipline of God is, does, accomplishes. The discipline, the good discipline of God lovingly extinguishes our idols, rekindles a fiery passion for him and results in a renewed life. I want to take this statement, it's a bold statement, big statement, but it's a statement I stand by. And I want to take this statement and prove it from Hosea chapter 2, particularly the last half of the chapter, because that's really what this last half of the chapter is all about. The discipline, the good discipline of God that extinguishes our idols. 
In fact, we see this uh, in verse 9. If you want to start with us there, we'll look at verse 9. And we'll see first that the good discipline of God lovingly extinguishes our physical idols. That's what it does first. Verse 9 says, Therefore will I return. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof, and I will recover, I'll take back my wool and my flax given to cover her. So here's the idea. <laughs> they made unholy alliances, unholy nations to worship unholy gods, particularly a god named Baal, who was the god of fertility. Now, during this time, as they're committing this idolatry, God's still blessing them financially with, in this time period, the finances of crops. Okay? They're attributing that in chapter 2 to their worship of Baal. They're saying Baal has come through for us. Right? And the truth is that Baal's not providing any of this. It's God. See, one thing we have to learn, particularly as Christians in the West, is prosperity does not indicate your level of obedience or disobedience, right? So they think that, hey, you know what? God must be okay with us worshiping Baal because, look, there's all this corn, there's all this wine, there's all this wool, right? It must be fine. The prosperity does not indicate what is good or evil in your life. Prosperity doesn't indicate whether or not you're worshiping God as he intended you to worship him or worshiping idols. It's not a good indicator. And they're going to find this out. See, they believe that God, uh, sorry, Baal, really, Baal, who was the fertility god of Assyria that they're worshiping, they believed that this Baal was giving them all these things that they were using, you know, for blessing, for fun, for good. And so now God, to correct, to bring them back to himself, is going to remove these crops, remove these goods, remove this wool, this flax, so that they will remove their trust in Baal, put it back to where it was supposed to go this entire time, in the God who gave it in the first place. This is the discipline of the Lord. Make note, God's not going to do this just because he wants them to starve. He doesn't. He's not going to do this because he wants them not to have enough clothes and be out in the cold. He is doing this because he wants them to turn from sin and trust God over prosperity. He wants them to trust God over wealth because that's where human flourishing takes place. You see, when God gives us good things, we need to thank God for those blessings. But when God gives us good things, we take a wrong turn when we thank our blessings as if they're God. When we do this, we set ourselves up for a very difficult, very painful experience. Right? Very painful because here's the truth. Once we start thinking these blessings are God and those blessings go away, all of a sudden now we attribute the, the, the failure of our idols to the failure of God. Money is good, but we don't trust money. We don't thank money. We don't worship money. Health is good, but we don't trust in our health. That can change on a dime. 
with a wrong turn at a red light. This could change instantly. So we don't worship our health. We, possessions, they're good, but we don't put our trust in possessions. We don't, we don't worship possessions. We don't idolize them. Right? When we do, our life becomes more fragile because as soon as those idols fall, break, where moth and rust doth come in and thieves break through and steal and those things disintegrate, all of a sudden, all this, this, this worship, all this emotion, all this, this time and energy we've put into those things, we realize is wasted. Right? So God comes in to save us from such a place, such a fragile place to where our joy can be taken away with our possessions and he corrects, he disciplines, and he extinguishes sometimes our idols in the physical realm. We also see that God extinguishes our idols in the spiritual realm. He extinguishes our, our physical idols. He also extinguishes our religious idols. It's part of how he disciplines his people. Look at verses 10 and 11. We'll read them and then we'll explain them. It says this in verse 10, 11, Hosea 2, 10 and 11. And now I will discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. None shall deliver her out of my hand. And I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her solemn feasts. It's going to take all these feasts and rituals, ceremonies, celebrations away. Now, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you know that these solemn feasts, these Sabbaths, these new moon festivals and so forth were part of the Old Testament Levitical law. They were commanded by God. They were given to the people by God. So God instituted these things. Now he's taking them away. What's going on? Well, behind the scenes, what you will see if you study Hosea, if you really, if you study Israel's relationship with Assyria, Israel's relationship with Baal, all throughout the Old Testament, but especially in this time period, Israel was guilty of, of an incredibly destructive, offensive, and wicked sin called syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is a sin we don't often talk about, at least not under that name. And it's when basically you mix two faiths, two religions, if you will. And so you've seen people perhaps do this somewhere, someplace, sometime, where they say, you know, I, I do this, under this God, and I do that under that God. And I, you know, kind of go to this, this place of worship, but, you know, when I'm with this group, I go to that place of worship. What they were doing in Israel, northern kingdom, is that they were trying to somehow merge the worship of Yahweh, the worship of Jehovah, the worship of God the Father, with the worship of Baal. So when we think of idolatry, we probably think that the Israelites are forsaking the temple, going to the temple of Baal. A more accurate picture of their idolatry is that it was synchronistic and that they brought Baal into the temple, that they would take a Sabbath in observance of God's law, but on that Sabbath, pray to Baal, that they would have a solemn feast and make sacrifices like God said, 
and some of those sacrifices would be dedicated on an altar up to God, and right next to it, some sacrifices would be dedicated on an altar up to Baal. This is called syncretism. And it's this incredibly offensive sin to God. In fact, God puts it on the same level as just forgetting God altogether. Say, but he's included, but he might as well be forgotten. We actually see this in verse 14. Hosea 2, 14. He says, I will visit upon her in the day of Baal where she burned incense to him. And she decked herself with earrings and jewels. And she went after other lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. He says, she's all but forgotten me. She being Israel, the people of God. She's forgotten me. Now, I want to make sure we know this, because I've studied under this word forget into the Hebrew language. This is not the same word we would use when we say, hey, I forgot my keys. Like I, like I do. Right? Like I forget everything. Right? Like I'm the kind of guy who will have my phone in my hand while I'm looking for my phone. You ever been there? Right? I've forgotten that it's on my very person. This is not the kind of forgetfulness we're talking about with Israel and God. This is the type of forgetfulness where, let's say, Justin comes up to me and says, Hey, Mitch, let's go down to cookout. They got 40 milkshake flavors. Got to pick one or two, mix them together. It's going to be delicious. And I say, why don't we bring Chet? And let's say Justin said, you know, forget Chet. Let's go. And we leave him behind. Sorry, Chet. That's really more the idea of forget in this text. So at first... They were forgetting him in this sense. They were saying that they would merge the two regardless of how God felt. But over time, they forgot that this was sin and they forgot him in a second sense. In the sense that this became their normal. This became acceptable in the culture. And so they were, in another sense, just forgetting God, his law, his word. This is so incredibly offensive to God. Wicked. This is the equivalent of cheating on God like one spouse would cheat on another. That's the whole reason behind Hosea's marriage to Gomer. That's what the people of Israel were doing to God. That they were acting like somehow they had gotten to this place where somehow it was normal to have their wife and their girlfriend in the same room and that they were just supposed to be okay with this. That's the drama that's playing out. And that's the offense to God, that you have forgotten who I even am and what I even want. Not only is this offensive to God, I want to make sure we get this. It's not just that this is offensive to God. That's huge, huge this is also really dangerous for them because Baal, right, not only is he, that, that whole system of worship and that false religion was violent. It was um, like very, very, uh, you know, uh, degrading to both men and women, temple prostitution. Not only was it debauchery, but also it was doomed to fail. Because, see, Baal wasn't blessing them. Baal wasn't going to bless them. Baal is going to fail them. Like we said in point one with our physical idols, sometimes God has to remove our false religion, our idols in the spiritual realm, 
our syncretism because he doesn't want us to assume that when our idols fail us, he's wrapped up in that. See, if God allows them to go to Baal, Baal fails them. Now they're in this dangerous place where they believe it was also God who failed them. Baal's imperfect. God the Father's imperfect. Baal couldn't you know, save us. Maybe God can't save us. It's a dangerous place for their souls to be. It's a place God doesn't want them to be. So God comes in and he removes, he takes away some of these spiritual idols takes away some of these spiritual feasts and Sabbaths to put a stop to their syncretism. We too have to be careful with this syncretism, this sin. We see it on a lot of scales. Let's talk about the church scale. As a church, we have to be very careful not to mix Jesus with anything else, with Southern culture, mix Jesus with, with uh, our religious preferences and standards that we simply hold out of tradition. Traditions are fine, but we have to be careful to mix, not mix Jesus with them and act like Jesus commanded them. This is syncretism. Right? Sometimes it's called legalism. But it's in essence the same idea that you're mixing two faiths. This Old Testament law, this pharisaical idea of works-based favor with God mixed with, if you say this prayer, you go to heaven with you die. When you die, that's not right. That's adding Jesus to something. And it's syncretism. And God will come in and he will take away some of those idols. And discipline us so that we come back to our first love. We could just stick with our first love. As a church, we got to be careful not to mix Jesus with anything else. Individually, we have to be very careful with this as well. Not to mix Jesus with anything else. Well, I'll give you one ex example. This just comes to, to mind now. Uh, maybe it's from the Spirit. Here's the idea. That right now, big deal uh, is mindfulness and meditation. Nothing is wrong with mindfulness and meditation. The Bible even talks about mindfulness and meditation under some different names, different ideas a little bit. And if you're going to do your devotions and to do some mindfulness and meditation with Jesus to calm your mind and put your trust in him, that's awesome. Do that. But we, we can't do is take it too far. There's a line. You'll have to draw it. The Spirit will tell you. But you've got to watch out for syncretism because what you don't want to do is think you're just calming your mind and putting your trust in Jesus through some quietness and some space, which is healthy. And then all of a sudden you're trying for enlightenment or transcendence or a higher self in some way that is actually rooted in some East, Eastern religion, let's say. Some New Ageism, some ism that isn't Christianity. And I know, I mean, for most of you, this isn't a problem, but it can be. We've got to be careful not to mix our Bible reading with Buddhism, right? There's this idea that, you know, there's there, syncretism right, is still possible. We might not be doing worship to Baal in the same temple as worship to God, like their syncretism, but we've got to watch out for this even on a personal level. It's dangerous, because at some point, as mindful and as, 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 medita uh, as much meditation as we want to do, that stuff will help. At some point, maybe we'll be anxious anyway, and we'll think, hey, I read my Bible, I prayed, I was mindful, I meditated, and this didn't work, so maybe the Bible and prayer didn't work. Well, those are actually two separate things. And now your idols failed you, 
and you attribute it to God, and God doesn't want that. So what does God do? He'll strip away some of these false uh, I, these, these, this false thinking, some of this, this, this non-truth, he'll, he'll start taking away our idols in religious places in the spiritual realm so we don't fall for them. Right? He says in verse 10, I will now discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. None will deliver her from my hand. He's talking about the discipline of the Lord. He's going to let their idols fail them. That's the idea, that they are going to be exposed in their false religion and that their religion that they love, that they trust, will be exposed as nothing but myth, legend, fable, and folklore. This is the discipline of the Lord. Now, like I said, right, the discipline of God is, the, is in a world of discipline, the discipline of God is the best. Now, we just talked about him stripping away our physical idols, our spiritual idols. You know, uh, you're like, that doesn't sound like the best. Well, it actually is the best because it really all comes down to why God is doing all this. And now we've hit it a little bit to be sure in the first couple of points, but I want to hit it hard for a couple seconds now and go into that second part of our statement. And that statement was that the good discipline of God lovingly extinguishes our idols and it rekindles a fiery passion for him. That's why God's doing all this. It's because he's got a fiery passion for them, for Israel, and he is bringing them to a place where they will be rekindled in their passion for him. A relationship, the relationship between God and his people will go from one-sided to 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 full and to complete. Not just a faithful love for unfaithful people, but the hope is faithful love for faithful people. Faithful love and people responding faithfully to that God of love. He is going to use discipline to rekindle a fiery passion for him. Look at verse 14. Uh, You'll see this. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly unto her. Verse 16, it shall be in that day that thou shalt call me Ishi, which is the Hebrew word for husband, and no more Baal, which is a wordplay on the God of Baal, whose Hebrew name meant master. You'll call me husband, not master. 19 and 20. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I'll betroth thee unto me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, loving kindness and mercies. I'll betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and you'll know that I'm the Lord. Where you have forgotten me, you will now remember me. This is the heart behind God's discipline. He takes away the physical idols, the spiritual idols. He makes their land into a desert so that there is nothing around. Why? So he could be alone with them and tell them how much he loves them. This idea of he will allure her carries the idea behind a young man winning the heart of a woman he wants to marry. And it's not that our relationship with God is one that is romantic, but it's this idea that God wants and desires a relationship with us with a jealous and zealous love. It's, this, it's supposed to kind of be a little awkward 
because it's that much love. It's supposed to be astonishing, to be honest with you, that he'd even put himself in this category of a bachelor chasing his you know, dream girl. But this is the idea that God's love is this very fierce and intense love. It's a passionate love for us. It's like Hosea trying to win back Gomer. It almost doesn't even make sense. Why not just let her go? Why doesn't God just let us go? Why didn't God just let these Israelites go? You want Baal? Go to Baal. But he can't let us go. He can't let her go. He loves us too much. He's passionate about us. And he puts it in astonishing words here in Hosea 2. This idea of alluring us back to him in hopes that we will be allured and be passionate towards him. We see the relationship that God brings out of discipline. When he says, it's all over, you're not going to call me master. You're going to call me husband. Baal, that word literally meant master. God says, you could call me ishi, or the Hebrew word for, you could call me husband. See, every other religion, the God is a slave master, and you're the slave, and you need to do a good job and please him. He's the boss. And God is distinguishing himself in Hosea 2 from all the other gods, all false religion, all other religions. And then he says, no, no, I'm like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I am like a family member. We have a covenant like a bride and groom. That's more the relationship God brings out of discipline. That's more the relationship that God wants. And isn't that, that the relationship we would want with a God? You want a God who's like a master, a slave master, or a God who's like a friend? God says, come, come to me. Right? He's alluring us to him, our friend. This is the relationship God brings out of discipline. In that he takes away all our idols, he shows us how much he loves us in hopes to rekindle our fiery passion for him. In fact, he wants it to be like it's a brand new relationship. We see this in verses 19 and 20 with the word betroth. Betroth thee unto me. I'll betroth thee unto me, he says. I'm going to start all over, God says. Because betrothal, you know, in those days, it's like an engagement. right? It's like you're just getting married, you're getting the plan settled, and you're going to have the wedding. And in these days, weddings were like, what, I don't even know how long, 10 days, 2 weeks, I mean, this thing could have taken a year. It was a very serious relationship. Their engagement was much more like a a state of marriage before becoming one family unit. But it was all new and it was all fresh. I'll tell you, I remember getting engaged. And I remember getting married and going on a honeymoon. And when all that was so new, there is this great freshness, a new relationship, a new start. You've got your lives ahead of you. There's this beauty to that. There's a, refreshing, there's a refreshing feeling that comes with that. There's this newness that we love. And God looks at his people who are worshiping, steeped in worshiping Baal. He says, I'm going to lure you. I'm going to have you, I'm going to be your friend rather than your master. Look at this love. He says, we're going to start all over. I'm going to betroth myself to you. Now these people, they've already been in covenant with him since Egypt and before, back in Abraham in his day. And God says, it's like we're starting all over. We're going to do this all again. It's all fresh. It's all new. Let's just, let's start over. 
I'll betroth you unto me. This is like Hosea going to get Gomer out of some dude's house that she's cheating on him with, getting down on one knee and asking her again, hey, let's renew these vows. Let's start over. This is God's love, his faithful love for unfaithful people. And out of that love, our love grows. Out of his passion, our passion for him grows. We love him because he first loved us. And when our passion for him is rekindled, we do get a whole new start. Which brings us to the last phrase of our statement. That the good discipline of God lovingly extinguishes our idols. It rekindles a fiery passion for him. And it brings us this state, the sense of renewal. It results in a renewed life. Renewed life. God is an expert at renewing life. God loves renewal. God practices renewal. God promises renewal. Sometimes this is called purification. Sometimes it's called consecration sanctification. The idea is God is all about second chances, third chances, fourth chances, dedication, rededication, try again, try again. He even says in the book of Proverbs, a righteous man falls seven times, gets back up again. Isn't it amazing that a righteous God loves guys and girls who fall seven times or more? Gives them a new chance and a new start, a renewed life. He is disciplining these people. He's taking away their idols. They're going to be poor for a little while. He's taking away their feasts, their celebrations, their Sabbaths. Right? They're going to be bored for a little while. They're going to have a confused identity for a little while. There's going to, they're going to go without for a little while. But he's doing all that to get rid of the old and bring in something new. He's doing all that to renew them. See this in verse 15. It says, And I will give her vineyards from thence. And the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there in the valley of Achor as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. We're going to go back like it's just the Red Sea just parted. All that newness, it's coming back. We're going to renew this relationship. We're going to make the valley of Achor, some of the worst parts of our relationship, into a door of hope is what God says. Now, to get this astounding statement on the Valley of Achor, you have to remember a story in the book of Joshua, chapter 7. After they knocked down the walls of Jericho, they were told not to take anything out of Jericho. And this dude named Achan thought he could sneak a few things out of the city, put them under his tent. And so they went on to the next conquest, place called Ai, and they lost when they shouldn't have lost. And Joshua goes to God and says, why aren't you blessing us? Why aren't you helping us? Why, can't, why did we lose? And he says, there's sin in the camp. So they go through the camp and they find Achan. And he had stolen all these things he wasn't supposed to steal, take all these things he wasn't supposed to take. And there's this great discipline on Achan and his family. They receive the death penalty for their crimes. It's the Valley of Achor where all that happens. It's a very dark spot in Israel's history. It is, a, it is a story in Israel's history that resonates, rings with fierce discipline from God. Discipline. And he says, but that discipline, right? Some of the, this discipline, 
in Hosea 2, all of this is actually going to be a door of hope. It's going to be a new beginning. There's actually, out of all of this, is going to rise from the ashes a beautiful new relationship between you and I. He's going to take this bad news the corn, the wine, the oil, the flax is gone. The feast, the new moon, the Sabbaths are gone. And he's going to make this bad news into good news. Their sin will actually be turned into their surrender. Their surrender. Their discipline is actually going to turn into their dedication. I'll try to illustrate it the best I can. Think about Jesus. Jesus. What's the worst thing? humanity's ever done, it's kill the Son of God. We hung the Son of God on a cross. Think about the soldier, whoever it was, who took his spear and thrust it into the side of Jesus. That is the most shameful thing a man can do. That is the worst thing a human being can do, is kill God. And yet, as he sticks that spear through the side of our Savior into his heart where blood spills out of his side, that insane sin draws out the blood that saves him. In fact, one of the centurions that was crucifying Jesus cried out, this must be the Son of God. In the midst of humanity's worst crime, slaying the Son of God, it was actually the most hopeful moment in that his slaying provides salvation for all of us. Humanity brings Jesus to his last breath, and yet his last breath is our first hope. This is how amazing the discipline of God is. This is how amazing the redemption of God is. This is how amazing the renewal of God is, is he is able to take our worst and turn it into our best. He is able to take the worst news and turn it into the best news. He is able to take away our idols so that we can focus on him. He is able to, 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 to discipline us so that we might be dedicated to him. He is able to take our sin and all its consequences and somehow use that to turn our relationship with him into some you know, glorious, beautiful thing to where the consequences aren't even on our mind. He is. And these consequences help us hate sin and love him. So at the end of the day, we're almost thankful for our consequences because they tether us to God. Our valley of acorns become doors of hope, doors made from the very wood of the cross of Christ. The discipline of God becomes the very thing that dedicates us to him. It's a renewing discipline. Look at verse 18. It says, In that day I will make a covenant for them. Beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword of the battle of the earth and will bring them to lie down safely. This right here in Hosea chapter 2 is one of the first hints in the Bible towards a new covenant. See, here's the old covenant being broken, shattered in pieces by who? By God? No, by his people. And according to that covenant, they deserve to be abandoned. And yet he comes in and says, you broke that one, I'll make a new one. Where instead of you having to go to my temple, I'll just make you my temple. 
Instead of you having to read through my law, I'll write my law on your heart. Instead of you having to bring sacrifices to me all the time, I'll come to you and I'll bring my own sacrifice, my very son. Instead of a few of you trying to be priests for the rest, I'll be the priest for all of you. Instead of a physical kingdom where you've got to be here in these borders of Israel to be in, I will establish my kingdom in the hearts of whoever believes so that wherever you are, there my kingdom is also. So here we not only see that he renews their relationship in the moment, but he's going to renew man's relationship to God for eternity through a new covenant, a renewed covenant, a better covenant, a new testament that all comes through the discipline of God. In a world full of discipline, God's is the best. So what do we do? First, if you're a non-Christian, just know that this world is going to discipline you, that this world is full of discipline. Come to God and receive a loving Father. Come to Jesus and through Jesus receive a good Father. Come to one who disciplines for the sake of your renewal, not your demise. If you're a Christian, just know that even when it feels like it, God is never out to destroy you. Jesus was destroyed for you. But he will discipline you. And as Christians, we have options. We can doubt him. We can resent him. Or we can thank him and embrace him. As Christians, we read the Bible, and all throughout the Bible, the writers encourage us, embrace him, even in his discipline. Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Don't be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father with the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12, 5, then down in verse 11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you're rebuked of him. Now no chastening for the present moment seemeth joyous, it seems grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. It is the discipline of God that extinguishes our idols and renews our passion for him rekindles our passion for him, renews our life. In a world full of discipline, God's is the best. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for sticking with us through the book of Hosea. Thanks for studying with us. Hosea chapter 2, I'll pray and I'll let you go.